good to be with you. I still can't figure out when to actually come on stage. If you come up too early, you stand here awkwardly for a few minutes while the video finishes. If you come too late, uh, then you have to hurry. So uh, we'll do well. It is good to be with you today. We have, for the last few weeks, been looking uh, to the Apostles' Creed to think about the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, the Apostles' Creed has its, its roots all the way back to the third century, and the church used, developed, built this creed really to do three things. First of all, to unify the church. Uh, their time was as crazy as our time. There were a lot of bad ideas and speculation floating around, and they wanted to be clear. So they used the creed to unify. Secondly, they used it to teach, not only to be sure they were clear about the basics of the Christian faith, but to be sure they faithfully passed these things on to successive generations. And then thirdly, they used it to worship. Confessing what we believe together as a church is an act of worship. It is bearing witness to Jesus. It is bringing glory to God in declaring the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And today we come to the seventh and uh, final stanza. When Pastor Wayne asked me if I'd preach today, I was like, man, out of this whole series, this is the one I've been itching to preach. So, yes, yes. I'll read the entirety of the creed this morning, and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, their forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. This has probably happened to you. Have you ever driven by a church, uh, maybe in the countryside, maybe in the city, but have you ever driven by the church and right beside the church, I mean Right beside the church, there's a graveyard. And you think to yourself, those people can't even like go from their cars to the building without walking through graves. It's, is that awkward? Is it morbid? Was it just really bad foresight and planning? And then maybe you've taken a trip to Charleston, right? And you walk around down there and you explore some of those churches and you think, man, there are graves by the sidewalk, under the sidewalk, all around the yard, maybe under the building, sometimes under the pulpit of the sanctuary, and you think, wow, that's just, I don't know, strange. What we don't consider is that the church graveyard is actually there for a purpose, right? It, it said something, and the message was this, those folks... They were part of us. Those folks, they're still part of us. And on the great resurrection day, they'll be part of us then. Life together, death together, then resurrection together. That's why the church graveyard was dug. But we don't think about that anymore because we don't think that much about resurrection anymore because, frankly, we don't think about death all that much anymore. Now, it wasn't that long ago, just, just a generation ago, really, that life expectancy might have been somewhere in the 40s, that measles killed children and 
bearing children killed women, and if you got a fever, it was truly, truly bad news, and folks thought about death a lot. In our day, death seems like it's, you know, down the road. It's, it's a long way off. And so when we think about death, like, sure, but that, that comes after retirement and the beach house and the BMW, all that, right? And so death gets pushed back to their, our minds and then back to the back of our theology. But the New Testament teaches us that resurrection is our theology. It is who we are. The resurrection is the unique even audacious claim of the Christian faith. So unique, so audacious that it's why the early church threw the, threw the world for a whim. It was, it was unbelievable to anyone around them. Uh, to Jewish people, the idea of resurrection in real time, that was nonsense. Sure, there was going to be a resurrection, but on the last day, and when a resurrection happened, that was game over. That was judgment day. Right? So they couldn't acknowledge trouble with the resurrection of Jesus, also struggle with the resurrection of us. For Greeks, Romans, Hellenists, they didn't want a resurrection at all. They were trying to escape the body, right? They wanted to move on from this body onto another realm outside the flesh. Now, my guess is that we still think a little bit like that, right? Here's how we think Jesus died for my sins, my soul can live without my body. And my soul will go to heaven when I die. Good enough. But it's actually not. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul won't allow that to be good enough. As we read through this book of the New Testament, we find that the Corinthians had a lot of things wrong. Uh, They could be show-offs. They were divisive. They were competitive. And Paul spends massive chunks of this letter correcting many things, but he will not let them slide on this one thing because the resurrection tells us everything we need to know about the gospel. It is the teeth in our faith. The resurrection of Jesus was not merely God's, like, best day at show and tell, right? Hey, world, look what I can do. It's more than that. The resurrection is not just the icing on the cake of the Christian faith. It is the cake So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to ask and hopefully answer the same questions that the Corinthians were asking. First, this simple question, are the dead raised? Like, really? Are the dead raised? Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, let, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As 1 Corinthians 15 unfolds, we see that the Corinthian believers are tempted to deny the future 
bodily resurrection of believers in Christ. It just seems a little bit too crazy to them. It still seems crazy. This afternoon, if you were to walk around downtown Simpsonville and begin to ask people, hey, do you believe that roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, came out of a tomb alive? Many, if not most, would say, sure, yeah. But if you shift the question do you say, and say, do you also believe that there's a future day coming when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will actually, literally, bodily, also come up out of their graves alive just like he did. You might get a pause. You might get like a scratch of the chin. The response rate might go down significantly because in our time, we only half believe in resurrection. We accept it as a historical fact but we fail to embrace it as our future hope. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. If you deny the future resurrection of believers in Christ, then why do you need the resurrection of Jesus himself at all? Was it necessary? Did it matter? What would faith look like without a resurrection? Paul says, not much. Just some vague notion of hope maybe, but not much. Lee Eklov writes this. He says, Someone dear to me once gave me a little cross adorned with roses. It bears the inscription, Hope raises no dust. I tried my best to penetrate its mystery. I didn't want to look stupid, so I didn't say anything, but later I just had to get to the bottom of what it meant. It had to mean something, and when I, when I typed, Hope raises no dust into the search bar, I learned that the phrase was coined by Paul Eluard, a, a French poet associated with a movement called Dadaism. I also learned that Dadaism is a movement that celebrates chaos and vagueness and irrationality. Other famous quotes from the mo movement include... Elephants are contagious. Earth is blue like an orange. All of this brought me back to hope raises no dust. Everyone believes that hope is vital to people, but most folks' hope is about as vague as Eluard's quote painted on that little cross. But we don't say hope raises no dust. We say hope raises dead people. That's our claim. Resurrection is what roots our faith in reality. Resurrection is what gives our faith a sort of tangibility. Without the resurrection, Paul says, we don't have anything. We don't have anything to say. We don't have anything to offer. If we don't have resurrection, like, don't worry about renovating the, the big auditorium over there, right? In fact, we should sell it all. We should stop doing this. We should stop. We should disband. But with the resurrection, then, what is it that we have? What's the benefit? What does it do? When verses 20 through 22, Paul begins to put the pieces together. He says, but in, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The key term there is in verse 20, and the term is first fruits. First fruits. 
When I think about what this means, I, I sort of flash back to when I was 10 years old, and it's summer, and it's hot, and 4th of July is coming, and we would spend Saturdays at my grandparents' house, and in my mind, I can see my grandfather. And he's walking up and down those rows of tomatoes, and he's peering into those vines, and he's looking. He's looking for one red tomato before July the 4th. Because if he had one red tomato before July the 4th, what did he know? There's going to be a lot more. There's going to be a lot more just like that one. That's the meaning of first fruits in verse 20. Jesus, the first fruits, as the first fruit, it means this. There will be a lot more of the same kind. The resurrection of Jesus was just the first resurrection in glory and power. There will be more. You can't miss it here. If Christ was raised from the dead, then all who are in him will also rise in like manner. That is awesome, y'all. It's incredible. But how does that work? How does the resurrection of Jesus somehow bring about the future resurrection of me? Well, Paul first explains why it is that we die. We die because we are in Adam. We are associated with Adam. We've joined his rebellion. The curse that was cast onto Adam has carried to us, to dust you shall return, for the wages of sin is death. Rebelling against the one who gave you life can't bring about anything but death. Some years ago, I was talking with a minister who was in the midst of a, a really tragic divorce. And man, he was losing a lot. A wife who would be estranged from his daughter, lost his job. And in the midst of this conversation, he told me, he said, every day I suffer because of someone else's sin. And every day, someone else suffers because of mine. That's life in Adam, right? We sin and consequences rain down. They are relational. They are emotional. They are spiritual. They are physical. This is what it means to be in Adam. In Adam, death is our symbol. Death is our banner. Death is our destiny. For as by a man came death, Paul says, for as in Adam all die, yet conversely by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, so all also in Christ all shall be made alive. This is possible if Jesus replaces Adam. Jesus was who Adam could not be, true and righteous. Jesus did what Adam could not do, taking our unjustness and dying for it and dying in our place, taking on to himself our sin and rendering a payment. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians, Paul made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him and righteousness, righteousness brings resurrection. If Jesus the righteous one was raised from the dead immortal. That must happen to all who are in him. Listen, resurrection is not a facet of our faith. Resurrection is the finishing of our faith. It's what we're headed to. 
It's why the churchyard grave was dug. So yes, the dead will be raised. The next question then is, how? How will the dead be raised? I mean, after all, we're, we're talking about the resuscitation of corpses. Some of which have, just to be frank, have decayed, right? How's this going to happen? All you can say is that it will happen, but how? In verse 35, Paul picks this up. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. As you can see, Paul is not really impressed with the question here, right? For him, if God is in the equation, the how is beside the point. If God raised Jesus, he can raise you, full stop, done. But Paul entertains the question using the analogy of a seed. Taken by itself, there is nothing about a seed all by itself that would suggest what would emerge from a seed once it is planted, right? And what springs up from the seed, listen, is both of the same substance, but also different and better, right? The maple tree that comes from that little helicopter, it's the same kind of thing, but way, way better. And Paul's point is to say resurrection operates the same way. What springs up will be the same stub substance. You will still be you in the resurrection, but you'll be different, and you'll be better, and this is it. Just as your body is now fit for this world, then your body will be fit for a new world. And i got to tell you, as a guy who, who's in his mid to late 40s, right, cholesterol numbers, checking blood pressure, trying to watch my weight, feeling the decay of my body begin, this is good news. And I want to say, um, sorry doctors, nurses, uh, nurse practitioners, Dennis, I see you, Dr. Calvert, out there. Hey, appreciate you, love you, but one day you're going to be gloriously unemployed. <laughs> right? Amen. Gloriously unemployed. Gloriously. We have here one more question. A question the Corinthians asked and we asked. When? If we know the dead will be raised and we have some idea of how the Lord will, will do this in his own way, when? When's this going to happen? Well, look with me in verses 50 down through 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, you're noting in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So when? When will the dead be raised? Short answer, when God wants to. At that moment, at the twinkling of an eye, that's when. But the most important thing to see here is at that moment, we will be changed. There will be a transformation. Those dead in Christ will be raised immortal, imperishable, and those living will be transformed. You cannot enter an imperishable kingdom with a perishable body, right? And the Corinthians are tempted to think as we are tempted to think. You know... All that stands between me and glory is just this old body. And one day I will shed this old dying shell and my soul will fly away. Okay. But can I tell you, the promise of God to us in Christ, it's better than that. It's better than that. Jesus had a perishable body and died. But when he was raised, he was given a body that cannot die because it's fit for a kingdom that will never end. The coming kingdom of God is real, it is actual, and it is glorious, and we will have real bodies to fit that. This is our salvation. Death hangs over us. Death threatens to swallow us. But Paul says the resurrection has turned the tables, and life has swallowed death in victory. A day is coming when we will do what Paul does here. We will look death in the face and we'll scoff at it. We'll laugh at it. We'll say, no victory, no sting for you. Jesus beat you and in Jesus, I win too. That's what we will say. That's what we will say. It feels like a lifetime ago, and it is unbelievable to the students I teach at AU, uh, but I really was a youth minister once upon a time. And uh, out of the some 25 kids in that youth group 25 years ago, I did three funerals pretty quickly. A tragic auto accident took one at 16 years old. A murder took a college student at just 18 years old. And then just a few years later, uh, cancer took another one at just 27 years old, leaving behind a, a precious four-year-old daughter. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say to the parents of a superstar young man who is everything you ever wanted to be in a son? What do you say to the little sister of a college student who's murdered? What do you say to the little four-year-old girl who will never hear the sound of her mother's tender voice? 
here's what we say. Here's our testimony through the ages. We say this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we say. Our Christian hope is bound up in this. God raises the dead. God raises the dead. So let me challenge you today in just two ways. First, to have the benefit of resurrection, you must believe the gospel. Sin and death are urgent matters. Don't walk through religious rituals. Go with a risen, living Savior. He died your death, then conquered your grave. Trust him with that. The call of the New Testament is this. Repent and believe the gospel. That verse rings so true, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe. And secondly, believing the gospel means embracing the full benefit of resurrection. Don't half believe in our faith. Don't half believe the gospel. Don't settle for the half truth of, well, I'm going to heaven when I die. That's true, but God's promise is we will be like him, just like Jesus. Simply acknowledging the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection is not full faith. Full faith is Jesus came out of that tomb alive, and one day I will too. That's the story a physical, bodily resurrection to life immortal. He will do this for all who are in him. God in Christ raises the dead. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are awestruck, even dumbfounded, that you are a God who raises the dead that death had no hold over Jesus, and in Jesus it will have no hold over us. Father, we ask you today for the grace by faith to walk our lives in light of the coming resurrection, to know that this present life and this present world is not the end of the story, that you are committed to redeem all things to yourself in Jesus, and that starts with us. Help us to walk in that hope. And Lord, if, if there are some here who are, Lord, struggling to acknowledge what it is that you've done for them, I, I would just pray that you would grant them the faith to believe. Open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you've accomplished in it. Father, we just ask today that you would instill in our hearts hope, real hope, firm, stable hope, hope that is tangible, hope that won't die, hope of an everlasting kingdom. 
We pray these things together in Jesus' name. And all together we can say...